The Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation awarded $137 million for type 1 diabetes research in 2007. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me today is Dr. Lou Philipson and Amy Franz. Dr. Philipson is Professor of Medicine at the University of Chicago in the section of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism. Amy Franz is the Executive Director of the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation in Chicago, Illinois. Dr. Phillips, and welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Nice to be here. Thank you. Ms. Franz, welcome. Thank you. I appreciate it. Ms. Franz, since the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation was founded, how much money has JDRF awarded for type 1 diabetes research? JDRF was founded more than 30 years ago by parents with type 1, and it's truly remarkable. During that time period, we have just crossed the $1 billion mark that we have invested in type 1 research. And is this how you met Dr. Philipson? Yes. JDRF funds a significant amount of research at the University of Chicago. And Dr. Philipson happens to also be the endocrinologist to one of our board members and now several other board members. So it is through our relationship that we share with JDRF, which is how we connected. Dr. Philipson, what does your latest diabetes research reveal? There's several different angles of our diabetes research portfolio here at the university, so I, I interact with several different faculty. One of my strongest interests recently has been in the genetics of very rare kinds of diabetes, and that's been very exciting and picked up in some popular press as well. The idea that in very, very rare cases, things that look like type 1 diabetes are actually gene mutations where patients can come off of insulin and be switched to pills. But it is exceedingly rare. We think that it could be extremely interesting in terms of beta cell regeneration, that these are people whose beta cells are there but not doing anything in some cases for decades. There's other research projects here at the university that I interact with colleagues with in terms of development, even using zebrafish models to look at pancreatic development in similar organisms to ours, but are very helpful to understand those developmental issues. Immunology, for example, where we publish several papers on how beta cells regenerate or protect themselves from damage. And there's quite a few other areas as well in our community, including a registry for childhood diabetes in the Chicago area. So we have a very large and active group in multiple disciplines here. Dr. Philipson, is there a cure in sight? Well, that is one of the toughest questions I think that, that we have to face. One of the things that we worry about is overselling the optimism at the moment. I think that it turns out the immunology and the immunology of autoimmune disease in general is a very tough problem. And in order to identify even people who are candidates for treatment before the disease happens is a nightmare screening problem. So a lot of the research in terms of either a cure or a series of treatments early on is a a very exciting area involving now several companies that are in part funded or supported by the JDRF. There was even an announcement this week about a collaboration between a company and Glaxo and another company involved with Lilly in terms of new treatments for autoimmunity. So that's a very exciting area. What do I tell my patients? I tell them that they have to hope for the best and plan for the best treatment that we have at the moment. The JDRF is focused on concepts related to what's called an artificial pancreas, which really means a device or a set of devices to record the blood sugar or at least a kind of blood sugar surrogate and then to have that interface with an insulin pump. 
those developments are finally getting extremely exciting, very useful clinically. I'm very excited about continuous glucose monitoring. So that those things as excellent treatments or continued improved treatments will really be the focus of clinical care while the research studies proceed in the other direction. Ms. Franz, what support services does JDRF offer? JDRF is focused. Our mission is solely on finding a cure for type 1 diabetes. But part of that is we also want people that have been diagnosed with type 1 and parents that we have a wonderful 800 number. It's 800-533-CURE. We have a website with an abundance of information. We have an online diabetes support team that they can get to uh, through JDRF.org. We also have mentors. We have mentors for those living with diabetes as well as parents of children that want to connect and learn from each other and share information. We have information for those that are newly diagnosed, both children, teen, and adults. We also offer guidance and recommendations for people to speak with other organizations who can help them with health insurance needs or legal support that they may need through school. So we can certainly be a conduit for them to gather the information and to get the right resources that they need. But from an outreach perspective, it's really our mentoring and our online support that we offer. There are other organizations, you know, the American Diabetes Association, that do provide camps and other support services that are different from JDRF. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me is Dr. Philipson from the University of Chicago and Amy Franz from the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation discussing juvenile diabetes. Ms. Franz, what questions do you recommend parents ask when looking for the right doctor for their diabetic child? I think it's really important for the parents to speak with other parents about the physicians that they're using. I think it's important that, you know, parents know their child. Is their child more comfortable with someone that is more patient? Does their child need someone that is more direct? I mean, your child's style with any physician, whether it's, you know, diabetes or a general practitioner, the relationship that you have with that doctor, I think, really does impact the level of care and the ability for your child to listen to that physician. So I think that parents have great instincts and that they need to listen to those instincts when they think about the selection of the right physician. And also not to feel, if they feel they've had a misstep and have not selected the right physician, that it's okay to change and find someone who's the best fit because the care that your physician will give you with type 1 diabetes is really critical for your long-term health and the long-term success you have in managing your diabetes. Dr. Philipson, what causes diabetes? Oh, well, we have how many hours? <laughs> I think that one thing it's important to understand up front that diabetes is really many diseases, many different diseases that in the end look similar. So the two most commonly understood kinds of diabetes are, of course, type 1 that we're talking about today. And type 1 has now really sub-definition. So the overwhelming majority of people with type 1 diabetes have autoimmune diabetes, and that has been referred to by some people as type 1A but it is 99% of people who have a need for insulin in order to live will have autoimmune-induced type 1 diabetes. If you don't have a pancreas at all, through surgery, cancer, Father Bernardin in Chicago had a, a Whipple procedure that took out his pancreas before he passed away, those people are functionally type 1 in a sense, but not technically defined as type 1 because they don't have autoimmunity as the cause of their diabetes. 
What we found recently, as I, as I said, and over the last few years, is there's a growing number of specific gene mutations that can cause disease that looks for all the world like autoimmune type 1 diabetes. So it is very important that physicians work with their patients to make an active diagnosis of type 1 diabetes using all the tests we have. Those are antibody tests. For example, the anti-GAD65 test, uh, that's an antibody that is positive in type 1 diabetes at the time of diagnosis, about 85% of the time. So even 15% or so of people who look for all the world like they have type 1 diabetes, we can't rigorously define it in a standard clinical test. But they will certainly have no detectable or very little detectable insulin of their own using another test called a C-peptide. So having said that, type 1 diabetes accounts for about 10% of the total number of cases, which 90% or so of which is type 2 diabetes. But even so, the burden, the financial, social, emotional burden of type 1 diabetes is certainly equal, if not exceeding, all of the rest of the type 2 diabetes, in part because of the early onset in most patients, not all. I have 80-year-olds who have very easily defined type 1 diabetes new onset. It's rare, but it does happen. So there is this disparity in burden in part because of the young age of many of the patients who have type 1 diabetes. Then, of course, there's a whole list of other sorts of diabetes that can look like either type 1 or type 2 where the gene mutation has been defined. That's why I say it could be a very long conversation. What's very exciting is that these rare causes of diabetes give us tremendous insight into the potential for experiments in regeneration, in other words, how to allow the body to grow its own new beta cells, how stem cells might work, adult or embryonic, and how immune therapies can combine with regeneration therapies as, I think, the most exciting aspect of treatment in the short term. So I think that gives us a sense of, of lots of different kinds of diabetes that, that together form the, the burden. It is important, I think, when we have clusters, when a family has lots of diabetes in multiple members, that the doctors think about that very hard. We certainly have an emphasis on genetics of diabetes here. There are multiple centers, especially in, now at Yale, in Denver, in Boston, where the genetics of type 1 diabetes and the familial clustering of autoimmunity is also a very important area of investigation. Dr. Philipson, is it hereditary? Well, I can make a joke. It depends on what you mean by it. So some of the forms of diabetes are clearly hereditary. And in type 1 diabetes, it's very clear that if you have a specific set of markers in the histocompatibility locus antigen site, that's the HLA site, that there are specific genes in the HLA complex of genes that confer an increased risk for all sorts of immunity, including, in specific ones, type 1 diabetes. So when you say it's a genetic the risk for type 1 diabetes in, I think, probably the majority of cases, over 60 or 70%, would appear to be inherited. But not all of them are. And we certainly can find cases where, in a research laboratory, this is not done clinically to measure HLA types, where there is definitely a hereditary component. The JDRF also has supported some very excellent research where multiple family members, especially SIBs, can be tested. If one of them has diabetes, then does the other one have some of these early markers that seem to be predictive of diabetes? So in brothers and sisters and parents and children, one can potentially identify people who are at high risk. But since that's not the common form of diabetes, I don't think that's going to lead us to a cure for most new cases going forward. So that's one answer. For type 2 diabetes, 
it actually is probably more genetically linked than type 1 diabetes. And I'll give you an example. If you have two parents with type 2 diabetes, your risk of having, as a child of those parents, of having type 2 diabetes approaches 100% if you do not have a handle on weight, lifestyle, physical activity. If you have an identical twin with type 1 diabetes, I'm pretty sure the data is still right now that, that the risk for the other twin to develop diabetes is only about 50%. So this is something that's not well understood, that the genetics of type 2 are, in fact, more strong than in type 1. So I hope that begins to answer your question. Dr. Philipson, thank you so much for joining us to discuss juvenile diabetes. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. Ms. Franz, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate your time. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments at ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of the ReachMD library. Thank you for listening.